This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Difficulty initiating and maintaining sleep is a common problem for many patients. Over-the-counter sleeping aids are used by many, and we commonly get asked for prescription medications to help with their sleep. Unfortunately, the ideal sleeping medication doesn't exist, and many have potentially worrisome adverse effects. They may produce daytime somnolence, and some even have the potential to produce dependence. There's an alternative to pharmacologic treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is safe, can be easily taught, and offers an alternative to the many with chronic insomnia. We'll discuss this innovative treatment option with sleep expert, Dr. Michael Silber, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Michael, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. I'm really eager to hear more about this very interesting option to treat those with insomnia. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, when I think of the patient that I see who complain of difficulty, mostly staying asleep, maintaining their sleep, they describe their mind just constantly going and they're racing and uh, thinking from one thought to another. And is this pretty common? Because I seem to hear it a lot. Yes, it's very common. You know, insomnia, whether it's sleep onset insomnia or sleep maintenance insomnia, waking during the night, is a symptom rather than a disease. And it's important when we hear that story that we try and tease out a little bit about what are the factors contributing to that insomnia. It's simplistic to say psychological factors and physical factors, but it is a model that one can use to try tease it out. So on the psychological or psychosocial side, yes, current stressors are very, very common cause, and they may not be just acute, they may be chronic. So the racing mind with all the worries of our difficult lives certainly plays a role. But one must also think, does the patient have a defined psychiatric disorder, a generalized anxiety disorder or depression? If insomnia is not, has been more recent onset, we always have to think, is this a prodrome or beginning of depression? And then there's the factor we call learned insomnia. What happens is someone does go through a period of extreme stress. They develop terrible insomnia. The stress goes away. Their life returns more to normal. But in the meantime, they've learned to associate the bed, not so much with sleep as we all like to do, but with wakefulness, a maladaptive response which persists, and we call that learned insomnia. But we must also consider whether there are physical factors, and by far the commonest is pain from multiple possible causes at night. Restless legs would be another important one to ask about. And then other things such as hot flashes in perimenopausal women, nocturia in older men. And I would say that most patients have multiple causes. It's not just one, and we have to work together what's most prominent. But yes, the active mind, anxiety, stressors are the sort of situation where cognitive behavioral therapy is really a very good approach. Mm -hmm. Well, I had not heard of cognitive behavioral therapy until I started doing the research on this podcast. So I'm eager to hear more about it. So what is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia? Well, it's a form of psychotherapy, but that sounds so imposing and difficult. It's really an advanced form of counseling. 
And you know, when we get new sleep medicine fellows, especially if they don't come from a psychiatry background, this sounds so intimidating to them, the whole name is, but I tell them, you know, this is not all that different from the way you've been taught to counsel diabetics and patients with asthma. Um, we all as physicians do a great deal of advanced counseling at times. Now, obviously, these are specialized techniques. One has to learn them. So the cognitive part of it is teaching them a little bit about sleep and sleep physiology and trying to correct erroneous and catastrophic thinking, such as, you know, if I don't get seven hours of sleep a night, I'm going to die. And clearly that's not correct. The behavioral part is the most important, and that's teaching a series of techniques to do when you cannot sleep. And one has to learn them. But this is not deep psychotherapy, what happened when you were a child and things like this. This is practical therapy and practical counseling. I can go through and I'd like to go through the four main types of behavioral therapy. And maybe this is a good time to talk about that. Well, before you start that, right. who is a candidate? How do you decide mm -hmm. when they yes. may benefit from this? Well, that's an excellent question. Clearly, if all the insomnia is due to restless leg syndrome, we've right. got to treat the restless leg syndrome. But if a prominent component of the insomnia is due to active mind, anxiety, or even depression, cognitive behavioral therapy can be very helpful. Now, if it's severe depression, one obviously wants to treat that as well, either by more formal psychotherapy or antidepressants. But it's been shown that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is a very helpful adjunctive measure, even in people who've got defined depression. So as long as there's a significant component of stress, anxiety, depression, and this learned insomnia where they go to bed, tired, sleepy, lie down, and suddenly the mind's active because they've got this maladaptive response to it. All those are excellent patients for cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. Well, let's go over the basics of this new form of therapy. Well, I like to think about it as the cognitive side. And then when we get to the behavioral side, there are really four components to it. Not every patient needs everyone. Not every patient feels that this particular component resonates with them and will be helpful. So we have to individualize it, but let's go through each. Okay. The first is something with, again, the rather imposing name of stimulus control therapy, but it's really straightforward. And I personally think this is the backbone of cognitive behavioral therapy. So what this amounts to is teaching the patient only to go to bed when they're tired. If they're wide awake, there's no point in them lying in bed or trying to sleep. They should get up at the same time. They should learn that the bed is only for sleep and for sex, but not for reading and watching TV. If they not to go to bed at eight o'clock and spend two hours in bed watching TV before they try and sleep, do that in the living room. The bedroom they have to relearn is for sleep and generally sleep alone apart from sexual activity. So they try this, they lie down in bed and they can't sleep. Well, the way I tell to patients is even minor worries become great big dragons in the darkness and the silence of the night, and most patients nod very much. So you've got to turn off your mind. It's impossible to tell somebody to turn off their minds. Minds don't work that way. So what you have to do is to distract your mind. And the way to do it 
in the classic form of stimulus control therapy is to get out of bed, go into the living room and do something else. And ideally it's reading. And people who like to read, I say read. Now you've got to choose what you read. If you decide I'm going to read all my work material, that's not <laughs> going to do the trick. And if they're going to read something so exciting, they cannot put the book down neither. So you've got to choose something that um, occupies your mind, but is not too exciting to read. And you know, but, when that happens, the thinking stops. But you concentrate the, on the book and they go back to bed again 15 minutes later and try again. But now, get problem, out of bed to read, is that right? Well, Not that is bed. the ideal, but of course, that doesn't always work. Everybody's individual. Some people find that long, cold walk back to bed when they're mm -hmm. feeling sleepy mm -hmm. triggers the whole thing off. If they're not disturbing their bed partner, some people find it's easier to do in bed. And you've okay. got these little night lights you can clip to a, bed, a book. Um, alternatively, go to a spare room if you have one and read there and sleep the rest of the night there. So you've got to choose yourself. By the way, don't read on a tablet if at all possible, because that's blue light, which stimulates wakefulness. Of course, there are blue filters you can use. Um, if a person doesn't like to read, it's usually TV, not ideal, but it's an alternative as well. So that is stimulus control therapy. And to me, this is one of the most important approaches. The second one is relaxation techniques. This works for some people, not for others. Mental re relaxation, I think, is more effective generally than physical, but not for everybody. The classic example is targeted imagery. Imagine you're lying on the beach on a Caribbean island and you can feel the soft sand. You can feel the wind blowing through the palm trees, hear the waves coming in and out. That works for some people. That particular image doesn't work at all for me. I have other images which I do use targeted imagery when I can't sleep, but everybody's got to find their own and it doesn't work for everybody. Meditation, if you learn how to do it, prayers for some people work well, but some sort of targeted imagery is good for some people. We can learn physical relaxation, learning how to relax your body from the toes upwards and more specialized biofeedback may work, but you've got to have a specialized provider for that. The third component is sleep restriction. You know, we've all seen patients who really struggle and you ask them, what time do they go to bed? Eight o'clock. They turn off the light and they toss and turn till 10 or 11. Then they wake several times and they can't sleep beyond four or five and they lie in bed till eight o'clock in the morning. So they're in bed sometimes 11, 12 hours and they think maybe I'm getting five or six hours sleep. They're probably getting a little more. But all they're doing is making themselves deconditioned with these many hours in bed. So the formal sleep restriction therapy is really quite a process. You ask them to estimate how many hours they asleep, add 30 minutes to it, see that it's not under five hours, and tell them to restrict their time in bed to say five or six hours. Don't go to bed till say midnight, set an alarm for 6 a.m. and get out of bed. And by compressing their time in bed, they are actually driving their homeostatic mechanism towards more sleep. Now, that's a very formal way of doing it, and you've got to be pretty compulsive to learn how to do that, then slowly extend your sleep time. But just simple advice, you're spending too much time in bed. Don't go to bed till 11 o'clock and see you're always up by six or seven. Can be very helpful. And the final one, which alone is, has not been shown to be effective, but is a very important component of the others, is what we generally call sleep hygiene. And that involves taking the clocks and away from the bed. I tell people, 
what does it matter whether you've woken up at 2 or 3 a.m.? Is that going to help? Get rid of the clocks. Get rid of the cell phones. Don't just turn them around. Human nature doesn't allow that. Put them on the other side of the room if you need an alarm to wake in the morning. It doesn't matter. Don't get fixated on time. And then before bed, relaxation period. Um, get exercise during the day, preferably not the last hour before bed. Don't take caffeine, nicotine, or alcohol for several hours before bed. Get rid of noise in the bedroom. Pets, not a good thing on the bed generally, but everybody's individual. Get rid of the snoring bed partner. <laughs> well, I don't really mean that. Get treatment for the snoring bed partner. And then one other last thing under the sleep hygiene, which was taught to me by Dr. Peter Hari, one mm -hmm. a psychologist at Mayo, who was probably a world expert on insomnia, developed a lot of these techniques. Um, he taught me something called worry time. And I tell people, when you've got a lot of worries and anxieties, set aside 30 minutes every evening where you sit in a room by yourself with a sheet of paper in front of you and don't worry randomly, write them down. One, two, three, four, those are my worries. And then start with number one, what can I do to help that worry? And if there's nothing you can do, you know, a member of family is ill and you, there's just nothing you can personally do, write down, I really can't do anything. And then go through it and think of wherever possible some solution to the worries and do that every evening. And that sometimes takes away the worries from the sleep period. So those are the essence of cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, this sounds a lot like the stress management training that we mm -hmm. have been giving our patients to help with their often work-related stress, a lot of the same techniques. And here you're just using it more for one of the symptoms of stress, the insomnia, but it sounds fascinating. It is indeed. I mean, CBT is not just for sleep. This is what we call CBTI. It's mm -hmm. CBT adapted for insomnia. Yeah. So how effective is it? Has this been looked at to see if this is... Mm -hmm. uh, as effective as taking some medications or other treatments that we've been prescribing for years? It has indeed been looked at by multiple controlled trials against placebo and medications. It is at least as effective as medications, but whereas if you stop the medications, insomnia generally returns after the training, as long as the patient continues to practice it, the effect has been shown in trials to last at least six to 12 months. It is effective in different formats, one-to-one -one training, group training, training over video, training over telephone, and in fact, self-training through the internet programs and even through self-help books. All have been studied and they all look, seem relatively equally effective, though I think one-to-one -one is still the best. Mm -hmm. So there are many ways in which you can do it. How long is the training? Well, the old classic studies suggested four to eight sessions over several weeks, which is not always practicable. But newer studies have suggested even a single session of 60 minutes or less may be effective in teaching it. So it can be done briefly. And, there's, and you know, for people with ingrained insomnia, you need somebody who knows, understands the technique and can spend the time. But for less severe insomnia, 
I strongly think in a primary care provider's office, if one's prepared to give a little time to it, one can teach the most relevant techniques relatively briefly, or one can train one's uh, nurse practitioner, physician assistant. I will tell you at Mayo, we've trained our wonderful RN nurses to do it, and they do most of the cognitive behavioral therapy for our patients, but it is effective. Is this behavioral training ever given in conjunction with pharmacologic therapy or can it be used to try to taper people off medication? Yes, both of those have been looked at. There've been several studies when you've got someone with terrible insomnia, do they really have the time? They're so distressed to learn the technique and then practice it because it takes at least several weeks of, of practicing the technique for it to be effective. So there've been studies, does it hurt or does it harm to add say a hypnotic opidem or others for a couple of months while they're doing the cognitive behavioral therapy. And most studies have either shown it doesn't hurt or harm, or it actually benefits. The consensus today that is that it doesn't harm. So that is certainly an option you can do. Once they've learned the technique, then you probably want to try wean them off the hypnotic after not mm -hmm. too long a time. Mm -hmm. The other side of it is the patient on long-standing hypnotics. Now, if the patient is having side effects, or if it's just not working, and they've got horrible insomnia, and they've just continued to take the hypnotic because the doctor prescribed it, and I never stopped it. Yes, cognitive behavioral therapy is exactly what we will try and teach. And then when it's starting to work, we'll wean the patient slowly from the hypnotic. I do sometimes get patients referred from primary care, often a new primary care provider who sees a new patient in their 60s or maybe even their 70s, who's been on a drug such as Zolpidem for years and years, and they come to me saying, get them off this drug, we know that's not good for older people. Well, sometimes the patient will tell me, I've tried several times, and as soon as I try, I come off, all the insomnia comes back, and they've got no side effects, no unsteadiness, no falls, no sleepwalking, no amnesia, no cognitive impairment. And I generally have a pretty conservative approach. It seems to be working. If they, on 10 milligrams, especially a woman, lower doses needed for women or older people, I suggest, say, for Zolpidem, you might try reduce to five, see if it works. But I'm not uncomfortable with them continuing as long as we watch carefully and see that side effects don't develop and the patient understands as they get older, there is a risk of falls and other side effects. But if they want to come off and the physician wants to take them off, CBTI is an excellent way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Well, we are very fortunate at Mayo. And if we have a patient who we think would benefit from this, all we need to do is just click our mouse and it's ordered and they mm -hmm. go through the session. What about uh, clinicians elsewhere where they don't have that mm -hmm. option? How can they get their patients trained in this form of therapy? Yes, access remains a problem. So let me tell you what's available. The Society for Behavioral Sleep Medicine has an accreditation program for programs that train it mainly for psycho PhD psychologists and master level social workers. And they're increasing numbers around the country who are trained, but it's still far too small. Most sleep specialists, physicians who are board certified in sleep medicine can do this very easily, or at least have trained nurse practitioners or nurses to help them do it in their practices. So that's certainly a place where they can learn it. And 
there are lists on this, for instance, on the website of the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine of psychologists and social workers who are trained in it around the country. There's informal training. The American Academy for Sleep Medicine has courses and sessions at their meetings to train briefly people, physicians or allied health professionals who are interested in learning the techniques. And now there are on the internet several courses. We don't recommend one above the other. We have developed our own one, but that's at the moment limited to Mayo patients. But there are available internet courses which have been shown to be effective and, and that patients can be enrolled in those and use those. And then again, as I mentioned, for milder insomnia, a primary care physician should be able to teach some of these techniques with very little learning to just help a person just start getting on the right track. But access remains a problem and insomnia is so common, we do need more trained personnel. Well, Michael, you've given us some really interesting information about managing a very difficult problem. Can you summarize by maybe giving us two or three key points? Certainly. Insomnia, as you say, is extremely common. We need to tease out the causes. Cognitive behavioral therapy is effective, and we consider it to be the first line of therapy for patients with chronic insomnia disorder in which the physical complaints are not the major component. As I've mentioned, there are multiple ways of accessing this form of treatment, although access remains not easy in certain parts of the country, and even brief help from primary care physicians can be effective. In patients who try out this and prepare to work with it, it can be a very long-term effective way of managing this difficult complaint and reduce the need for hypnotic medications. We've been discussing cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia with sleep expert, Dr. Michael Silber from the Department of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. This was just a fascinating topic. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having the opportunity. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.